And now it's time for We Are Just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie. Here are your hosts, Mike Schmidt and Gary Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning and welcome to We Are Just Christians. We're really glad you tuned into the show today. Hope you can stay with us for the next hour. We'll be on till nine o'clock Eastern time on WPSL. And uh, I guess wherever you're listening on the Internet, many of you do that. We appreciate that. But this is a live call in show, as you may know, and we'll be taking your calls, comments, questions, whatever you'd like to contribute to the show here. In just a few minutes, Gary's got a couple things we want to go over first, but uh, our basic parameters are you can call and ask us about anything, particularly about spiritual matters, whether it's something personal, whether it's something in the news, whether it's something about the Bible itself or other things, whatever you got on your mind, we'll be glad to take your calls, comments, and questions on that. And our response, as best we can, is going to be something from the scriptures as far as we know them and, and we're going to give you some references and some ways to think about whatever is on your mind if that perspective is of value and we think it is of utmost value then you'll want to write those things down let me give you the telephone numbers although we're probably going to be a couple minutes before we take calls i, I we're on till the 10 o'clock not nine o'clock it's nine o'clock now sorry about that anyway um let me give you the let me give you the telephone numbers 772-340-1590 772-340-1590 is the number to reach us live you can also uh, reach us by text message either live during the show or any time during the week two text numbers mike's text number is 772 772-260- Six one two zero. That's me. Seven seven one two six zero six one two zero. And then Gary's text number is similar. Seven seven two two six zero six two two zero two six zero six two two zero. You can text us anytime you'd like, and we'll try to respond during the show, or if it's after the show, we'll respond during the week. That'll be fine. We'd love to hear from you. And so, in any event. That's what this show is about. It's about spiritual things. Now, Gary, you told me a moment ago, before just before we got on the air, that you had a couple of things you wanted to wanted to bring up this morning and go over before we well, got started with things. Well, Mike, you know we've been studying Genesis in the in our Sunday morning Bible study class, a very interesting study, and we've come to the pretty close to the end of Genesis, where uh, Joseph is sold into slavery into Egypt, and we have some interaction between the brothers, uh, Judah. And we have Benjamin taking part in part of this and uh, Reuben. Uh, So Joseph, though, seems to be the central character. But we see Judah as being kind of unusual. And I want to point out one of the things that I think a lot of Christians sort of, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm wrong about this, Mike. But Christians grow as they become when they become Christians. We shouldn't just remain static. Well, they should grow. We should grow. Right. And Judah, at the end of Genesis, uh, Judah is blessed by his father. And basically, one of the things that's said about Judah is in Genesis 49:10. It says, "A scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people." Now, this is a 
pretty important uh, blessing. Uh, this is messianic, I believe, in its nature. I think Mike would agree that when he says till yes. Shiloh comes, he's talking about the Christ. Right. Exactly. And uh, so, and and basically to him shall be the obedience of the people. This is a little foreshadowing of the kings of Judah or the kings of Israel basically uh, were coming from the line of Judah. And yet we see Judah in his early life as not being that, you know, nice a guy in many, in many ways. Um, he failed to do his due in giving his sons to Tamar so that she could have children. We have to realize that back then, your Social Security was your children. There was no Social Security. There was nothing but your children and your grandchildren to take care of you when you became of, of an age that you could not care for yourself. And that was very important for families to exist and have a cohesive uh, nature to them and, and produce children. Something we don't think about very much, I think, today, Mike, in, in our in our age. Oh, and it's coming back to haunt us, that's for sure. Yeah. It, it, time, time is ticking away about that. So the question keeps coming or came up in my mind, why did God give this blessing through uh, Israel to Judah? Why, why did it come to him? He didn't seem to be a very nice guy. And basically he ended up, uh, Tamar ended up playing the harlot and uh, Judah taking her as a harlot and she becomes pregnant and they decide, okay, she's done this immorality. We're going to, we're going to stone her to death or whatever it took in that period of time. And so she had exacted from Judah some things that would identify him. And so she brings them out and displays them. And Judah has to acknowledge that the child is his. And by, by tradition and by nature, it, he should have given one of his sons to this woman, and he didn't. I invite you to go read it. I'm not going to go through all of that. But I think the beginning— He also participated in the slaughter of the Shechemites. Shechemites yes. There are a lot of Unjustified things, slaughter. Uh, a lot of things that went on. But Judah and this incident with Tamar in Genesis 38:26 begins to show, I think, some—and this is my view—some acknowledgment of the fact that he hasn't led— proper life. He says in verse 26, so Judah acknowledged these things, the things that Tamar had displayed. And he says, quote, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son, and he never knew her again. So he's beginning to realize something here, I think, that uh, there's a right thing and he's right. not doing it. Well, see, what I guess what's behind this, what you're saying, Gary, yeah. just in case someone is not familiar with it, is that by all rights, Reuben should have been the heir yes, yes. past Jacob. And in the essence, he should have been the one you would think who the Messiah should come through. But it doesn't come that way. Judah is the firstborn son. I mean, for, excuse for me. Fourthborn. Fourthborn son. I said the wrong thing. But so you have you have Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Simeon and Levi participated in this bloodshed. And and they were not good people. And Levi was given no land even. He was only given the inheritance of being the priests, which is important, but uh, not not the firstborn heir. So that brings you down to Reuben, I mean, to Judah. And that's what you're saying. Apparently yeah. Judah 
didn't for, eventually he didn't forfeit his right because he changed because he changed he, he and, realized he had been wrong and tried to change and and that's really my point in this lesson mike that christians change as they proceed through life even after they become christian well yeah yeah, they should change for the better to follow Christ right. more closely. Sometimes they turn back to the world and become less right. faithful than they were, like a dog, Peter says, returning to his vomit. By the way, you can find that listing of the sons of Jacob in order in Genesis 35, 22, beginning. But, uh, yes, yeah. so apparently there was a change in Judah. Maybe this incident with Tamar and the shame it must have brought woke him up. He, yeah, he seems to realize that there's a right thing that I'm not doing. Yeah. And he's beginning to think about it. Now, I don't know exactly how God can. So Tamar ends up in the genealogy of Christ. Yes. Which is, which is is more a, righteous than him. Right. Yes. And um, and Judah, even after this event, when she begin, he's beginning to learn some things, uh, he was with them when it came to uh, they were originally going to kill Joseph. Right. Uh, he eventually kind of stays their hand and says, hey, we, we really shouldn't kill him. This is Joseph. And I invite you to read these stories. He's our brother. Let's just sell him into slavery and send him down to Egypt. Right. Well, that's well, maybe, that, that may be a better choice where but, somebody else could kill him, where somebody else yeah. could kill him or, or do whatever they did. Uh, now, Benjamin, uh, I think it was Reuben was the one who was trying to actually deliver him back to his father. But his brothers did not listen to Reuben, and it says so. And he tried now, to now you, I think you're trying to say then that that means that they didn't respect him even as the oldest. They didn't, they respect, didn't respect him, him enough even to listen as the to what oldest. he was saying. He, he was not, even though he was the oldest. He was not exhibiting leadership qualities that they would follow. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so even though Reuben tried to do the right thing, he was unable to do so. And they did not listen to him. He even says in one verse they didn't listen to him, and I, I'm not going to note all that, so I was trying to make this a little shorter. But beginning in 43, uh, basically they go down to Egypt, and they meet Joseph. They don't know who Joseph is, and Joseph says, don't come back without bringing Benjamin. He didn't tell him by name, but the youngest brother. Don't come back and, and appear before me again if you don't bring him, because you'll die, basically is what he implied. And so now they have gone back with the food they got, and it's run out, and they've got to go back for more. And Judah is in a position again to have to mediate for his brothers with their father. And what he is doing in Genesis 43, 3 and 5, 3 through 5, it says, But Judah spoke to him, saying, talking, he's speaking to uh, Israel. The man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send if you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. So what is Judah really trying to do? He's trying to talk his father into sending Benjamin, which his father didn't want to do. His father said, I'm not going to send him with you. And so he's trying to gain the favor of his father, and he's trying to mediate for his brothers so they can live. In Genesis 43 is where I think the real turn comes in 8 through 10. And then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me. 
and I will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and all our little ones, I myself will be a surety for him. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And Jesus, Judah is now saying, I'm going to become a surety. He, he kind of took the leadership in this right. situation. And he took now, now, Reuben had also lost uh, his inheritance, as it were, because he slept with his father's concubine, uh, yes. uh, Bilhah. And, and therefore, he uncovered his father's nakedness, as it would be expressed later in the law. And I think that's the event that set Reuben aside. And he probably lost he probably lost standing among his brothers for the same reason earlier on, chapter 34. And then you slowly see, as you say, Judah kind of asserting not only character, but leadership. They, and, they and, often go together, of course. Sometimes they don't. But he, he's case. he's beginning to change and become the man he should be, which is, in my view, this is this is a pattern that Christians should be following. So we can ha we can do bad things, evil things, things we're ashamed of in our life. The question, and that's ought to be that the question is not that. The question is, what do you do about that? What how yes. do you respond to that if that happens? If you do it, do you? go further into wickedness? Do you make an excuse for it? Do you get them to uh, name a syndrome after you? Uh, or do you actually repent uh, and change and try to grow from that, see what happened and go on? And that's the, que that's the question that really lies before all of us. How do, we, how do we handle, whether it's a direct sin, whether it's a weakness, a stumbling block we put in our own life, how do we how do we do that? So we're supposed to grow, Peter says, in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly. Continue to grow. That means to get stronger and do better as time goes on. And, and one the things that Judah's doing here that I think kind of pivot around, uh, he's trying to regain the favor of his father to send them. He's trying to make that that transition, and he's promising to be a surety, which is a pledge to be responsible for him up to the point of death, but he's also trying to regain his favor of his father, which is actually the definition of propitiation. If we look up that word to appease him, to, to appease, appease his father, yeah, right, to appease his father in their going back. And these are characteristics, being responsible for those things. And these are basically characteristics of Jesus. These are the things that he did. Um, I had an, uh, a list of about three things here that I wanted to kind of end with. We talk about imitating Christ. As a matter of fact, that word surety is used in Hebrews of Christ himself. Uh, so some of those things, the steps he makes, the changes he makes, are things that we should be looking for. What does Paul say? He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I think that's one passage. I'm not right. sure I quoted that exactly. Yeah, right. that's right. But Judah is mediating between his brothers and his father to be able to go to Egypt to save them. Uh, he's seeking the goodwill of his father. These are things that Christ did for us. He's a mediator. He's a propitiation or appeasement for our sins. And he was a surety of a new covenant, it says in the Hebrews. That, so that these phrase, are things that, right. that, that he did. That phrase, imitate me. 
it's used by Paul twice in 1 Corinthians, once in 1 Corinthians 4.16, and once in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, imitate me just as I imitate Christ. Anyway. And basically in the Philippian letter, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. We need to. We get the we get the word meme from, from that word imitate. Okay. In Greek. It, it is uh, mimetes. Uh, so the common word, well, we get memory, memento. We get lots of words from, from that, uh, th that word imitate, imitator, mime. We get the word mime in some root way from that word. So anyway, I, I'm going to get you off track there. Well, in summary, Mike, and I, I've really come to the end of what I really meant, Judah became in some ways a type of Jesus or in some ways like Jesus and the things that he did. And Christians are supposed to do that too. Right. So here, and then when you look at the blessings, as you mentioned, you refer to them in Genesis 49, that Jacob gives his sons, most of them are either neutral or negative. Judah's but Judah is not positive. positive a positive reference there that he gives as a blessing to his son. And the other thing is, I don't think you would consider Judah one of the major characters of the Old Testament, except the fact of his in the lineage of Christ. So you don't have to be some superstar in the kingdom to be important. If you grow, you then you and if have you grow in the right you can direction. Be useful to Christ. If you grow to in, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, you become useful to Christ, uh, and Christ then you become a part of the kingdom that's positive, not negative. And it, a lot of people don't do that, though. In fact, his lineage became pretty pretty important. Obviously, yes. Okay. So that was that was my lesson. Mike. Good. Well, I appreciate that. Um, I guess we do have a phone call. Uh, Jerry, are you there? Uh, good morning, Mike. Good morning, Gary. Uh, it's a very interesting topic today, but I was wondering about, uh, you know, in Psychology 101, uh, basic psychology, uh, they teach you the term polymorphously perverse, uh, which means the ability to experience a sexual sensation. And uh, the Europeans, do they have as many hang-ups, uh, uh, Europeans and Scandinavians, uh, hang up there. Americans have about about sex, you know, with somewhat of the opposite general. I mean, it's uh, they're not talking about homosexuality. They're they're talking about normal heterosexual people. And I just wondered, uh, which commandment was it? Thou shalt not covet thy noble wife. I know it's one of the first ones, uh, but there is some kind of reason why the only uh, Commandments I will remember is the seventh and the eighth, uh, and I always thought, uh, you know, thou, not, thou shall not commit adultery and thou shall not steal. And I knew there was some kind of reason why, reason why those were the only, uh, you know, commandments I, I recalled. And uh, but uh, I just wanted uh, basically to know: uh, do do Europeans have the same hang-ups that uh, U.S. has about sex? I'd like to listen to our film, Mike. It'll be okay. Okay, that'd be fine, Jerry. Thank you for calling today. You know, um, I, I didn't catch the first term that Jerry used, uh, morphosy, perverse. I'm not 
familiar with that. I'm probably saying it wrong. That's how I heard it. But I, I think we can address the idea of European hangups. You know, um, it, if you want to know what a hangup is, it depends on who you ask. Okay. <laughs> I mean, to, to homosexuals or pansexuals, I have a hangup because I would not have sex with anyone but my wife, who is a female. And so they'd say, man, you're just full of hangups because you won't you're not a swinger. You don't believe in having sex with uh, with uh, different people that aren't your wife or or you won't swing. And I forgot the term for it, Gary. I know that there's bisexual, but there's another other term for it where you just have sex with whatever sex comes along, male or female. And then those people, that's how, oh, you're such, you're so hung up because you only have sex with females if you're a male. You're so hung up because you only have sex with uh, your wife, and there's all these other females out there. Well, what about this? You're, you're so hung up because you only have sex with humans. There's plenty of animals you could have sex with. Well, that's changing in oh, Europe. Well, now, I know too. it is. That's my point. That's exactly what's happening. Germany has... And I just read an article about this recently. I probably can look it up here. Germany has a big public bestiality problem. They've even established several public places where you can go to have sex with animals of various sorts. So who's hung up? Which one of us is hung up? And and so I don't know. Am I hung up because I don't believe in having sex with sex dolls? You know, uh, yes. particularly you, you see, that's the problem. So what I'm saying, Jerry, is that hang up, hang ups are not the problem and say, well, you shouldn't have any hang ups. Well, that's a ridiculous position because I can always show that the person that tells me I shouldn't have any hang ups has a few hang ups of their own because it depends on how far you want to go. The question is, what's right or wrong? What's the standard? What does the Bible say about sexuality, you see? Uh, in Europe, well, we were standing on the beach over here. Maybe it was bathtub beach years ago. My daughter and her family, she's, you know, uh, uh, she's a very strict person uh, who I love very much. But anyway, and she was a little leery about Florida and the beaches and all that from being from Texas. And so we went to the beach with the kids. They were all your daughter-in-law, da daughter-in-law, not my yes. daughter, my daughter-in-law. Uh, and so we went over to the beach over there and uh, sure. And there was an old man next to us off a little bit where we're all sitting with let the kids play. And he stands up at some point, takes off his trunks, strips down completely nude, walks out to the beach and goes swimming. Of course, her jaw dropped to the floor. Well, mine did, too. Uh, and then he gets out of the he gets out of the water. Um, well, actually, he stripped down. And then he put on his bathing suit standing there. And then he goes out in the water, comes back in, changes clothes, strips yeah. out, strips down to bare naked, stand there for a minute, drying off. And then he puts on his suit. Now, I'm guessing from just looking at him, he was probably a European. And I think he may have said something. He was a Euro German or something like that, because in Germany, it isn't a, in France. It isn't a big deal yeah. to strip down naked in public. Are basically uh, what some of the things that I've seen and read about is when you're in France, you're you're able to do that, but most of the women will do it very cleverly with a beach towel that you don't see any. Right. Oh, and, I'm, and, I we were driving somewhere uh, over on the, on the 
west on in California on a vacation, going along, went to some famous beach, drove along the edge of the parking lot to park there. And there was a young woman get, getting changed by her car, and she basically just exposed herself while she was changing. She was trying to, as you say, use trying a to, towel, sure. but she wasn't very careful with it at all. And so she was standing there basically naked in the parking lot. I don't think she was intending to do that per se, but it certainly didn't bother her okay, at all. Now, the question is, why is that? And Europe is well known. They're always criticizing Americans because Americans don't practice public nudity of various sorts, and we're all very fastidious. That's a common criticism of Europeans toward Americans. But the question for me is, what's right and what's wrong uh, about this? And so I I know that I should not, I, I know we can disagree about public dress, but especially about sexual behavior. I'm gonna go back to the Bible and find out what proper sexual behavior is. You just mentioned Judah going to a prostitute at the city gate and and leaving his ring and, and staff as a surety for that visit for the to payment. the prostitute, a payment of, to that prostitute uh, and so forth. She might have been, a, the word that's used there in the Greek and the Hebrew, I mean, is a t- temple prostitute. He might have been going into one known for a false god. He thought, I don't know that, but she wasn't. Was that right or wrong? Well, it was wrong. It was immoral. He said, well, he had a, uh, do you, you just, the Hebrews just had a hang up because it's obvious that the pagans didn't have a hang up with that. The Hebrews had a hang up about that. The question is, does God have a hang up with it? I don't, I don't let Freud and Freud's terminology or classifications determine. I shouldn't let Freud and his, his classifications determine what I think is immoral or immoral. Well, now, I'll go ahead. I'll, yeah, I'll no, no, what I think is we need to define hang-up, and where do you define it, and how do you define it, and who's the authority for defining it? Right. Well, there's nothing in the Bible about a hang-up unless you want to talk about We're talking about immorality. Conscience, you see. A hang-up is something I would think that you don't, well, I, I don't know what the, I don't think Freud ever used the word hang-up. That's kind of a common a colloquialism. Well, that's an idiom. Some, an idiom for someone being neurotic about a particular thing. And you can have a hang up uh, about eating ketchup on hot dogs or whatever you may be. You know, you can have a hang up about everything. Uh, the question is, uh, why are you hung up about it? Some people are hung up about sexual matters because they've been sexually abused, for example. And so since they've been abused in a particular way or in a particular place, uh, they have they have a problem the rest of their life with sexual things in those places, in those ways, in those circumstances, until they deal with that. And sometimes they can deal with it effectively, and sometimes they can't. But I, I think sometimes abuse can create that kind of hang-up. But what Americans have is left over from probably the reason we're a little bit different is essentially, Gary, the Europeans booted the Puritans out of out of Europe. That's why they came to the United States. The Catholics and Protestants booted the Puritans out. The Puritans were trying to purify the Protestant churches. They got booted out of Europe. They came here, and they and then and they flourished in independently in in the colonies, United States colonies of uh, 
not the United States, but <laughs> North America, English colonies, and their strict rules about sexual things kind of took on a life of their own, became embedded in American culture through our religious and civic institutions. Some of those things are a little bit bizarre. They're outdated. Some of them are not, and here's my criticism of them, not because they're old or not because they're strict. My criticism of puritanical laws about sexuality is because they're not biblical. They viewed sexuality as simply a matter of procreation, which had its roots also in Roman Catholicism. And sexuality in the Bible is not about just about procreation. It's about pleasure. Right. Uh, that's where Proverbs 5 talks about uh, be, uh, having, taking, ravishing your wife and taking pleasure in her. Let her breast satisfy thee at all times and be thou ravished always with her love. That certainly is about, isn't about conceiving children by itself. And in, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, seven, 7, Paul is very explicit that we owe our spouses sexual satisfaction and enjoyment apart from procreation. So the Roman Catholic view this was promulgated for centuries and centuries is incorrect. The Puritans kind of borrowed that view. And so uh, we can have an openness about, and, and the Hebrews, see, they didn't get this from the Hebrews. There's a, been a book or two written about this, Gary, that Christians ruin sex, and by that, by Christians, they mean basically early Roman Catholicism and the Protestant churches under the influence of Augustine, who got his ideas from some of the Greeks, ruin sexuality, because the Jews don't have these, I'll use Jerry's word, hang-ups about it. In the old law, for example, they, they had a, they, the law was you couldn't have sex with a woman until you were married, and married couples couldn't have sex until they were married, not not even when they were engaged, they had to wait until their wedding. And so they would hang the sheets up outside where people could see them in the morning to show that the bride was a virgin, to show blood on the sheets or whatever the case may be. So the Hebrews were very explicit in their having a positive attitude about sexual things. And yet they were strict about immorality, about fornication and adultery. The law that Jerry uh, referred to about adultery. He first has in verse four. Um, Why aren't you trying to find it? I, would I, I like, don't know what number yeah. of commandment it is. Go well, ahead. I, I would like to read a passage that I think is very important to modern marriage, married couples today. I want to read 1 Corinthians 7 in verses 3 through about 6. And it says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the, hus the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right. That is such an important passage. And people, a lot of Christian commentators spend a lot of time trying to make it of no effect. Yes. Trying to explain it away. Make a couple comments about that. 
uh, uh, Gary. First of all, it doesn't say there that that uh, sex is about men. Sex and marriage is about both people. And exactly. it even mentions the fact that the wife is not to be defrauded of sexual pleasure or her sexual right first. And I, I think probably in practice, a lot of husbands do that. They, it's much easier for them to enjoy sexuality. It's much more direct. And so they just do what they want to do. And the wife is left there without any kind of uh, affection and satisfaction that suits her. So the husband is under obligation to please his wife and to do so regularly and can, to take thought for her, not to the word you, the word that translation uses is deprive. Right. I think probably a more, little more accurate in certain ways is the one that is the King James there, which says defraud the word, the word means to pay a debt. The word that you use pay a debt. So when you don't pay a debt that you owe, you're not depriving somebody in the way we use the word today. You're defrauding somebody. So this is the only debt that you owe in the New Testament uh, is uh, this in this sense. The American Standard also uses defraud. Right. Now, then the other thing is it also says the wife is not to defraud or deprive her husband. But the but they only but sex should be regular and continuous in marriage, uninterrupted. Unless they both agree, mutual consent, to stop sexual relations for a short time, a season, and that it be for spiritual reasons, probably maybe to work on the marriage, maybe because something has happened, maybe it says prayer, prayer, and, and some versions say prayer and fasting goes on, and then it's to be resumed. Not just, you can't just say, well, we're just going to suspend sex in our marriage till we figure this out. That's not you can do that, but that's not biblical. I can't give you any biblical authority for that, but I can give you biblical authority saying, well, we're going to refrain from relations for uh, X number of days, and we're going to pray about these things and see if we can't uh, figure out whatever's going on, or, or just for some other reason that maybe something else important is going on. And so you do that. and then, But you have a specified time there that the relations are going to resume. That is a tremendously important passage, and and this Paul, is what I teach about marriage in all my marriage classes. Basically, that the reason for that though comes very clear in the American Standard. It's a little bit different. It says that Satan tempt you not because of your inconsistency, incontinence, meaning okay. lack of self control, incontinence. Yeah, yes. So the point is, can, can you by depriving your mate of sexual relations contribute to them? having a lack of self-control and or sinning. You can. And don't do that. That's what he's saying. Yeah. I think the other benefit, the reason why this is so, that's the negative effect, is because sexual relations are what bond you into one flesh. They keep you yes. figuring out these problems. They force you to figure out your problems daily almost, very constantly. Yeah, that's and they bring you closer one another so you can live together even though you're different. That's what's neglected. We want to say, well, when we get all of our problems figured out and we like each other, then we'll have sexual relations. It's really the other way around. God says, have sexual relations, and guess what? Then you'll like each other. Now, none of those things work perfectly because the people involved don't submit themselves, both male and female, to each other. But this is... Um, this is this is this is a very positive biblical. The Bible, instead of forbidding sex, the idea that Christianity, Christians who forbid sex, 
and don't teach it in the right context are not teaching biblical doctrine. Right. It belongs in marriage. It is an extremely central part of marriage, and because it's part of what God gave each of us. Now, uh, yes, so we can discuss hang-ups. Uh, I, I want to make one other no, Okay, we, I'm reading a text here. Go ahead. You know, what this what this really means is we talked about several passages. says, basically, they shall become one flesh, talking about couples that are married. And what I... I'm going to confess that what I observed, and Sharon and I, and we've been married now for almost 55 years, will be next month. Basically, sex changed the nature of our love. It changed it more from passion to a a so deep-seated concern for the safety and well-being of the other that it was amazing to me how that change took place. Well, this is the error, Gary, of a lot of Christian teaching, and I'm going to go Gary's direction about, and I don't know how I can't compare it to European teaching, except the Lutheran churches, Roman Catholic churches, but I'll compare it in American teaching. The Christian teaching is that sex is about the flesh, and they say the flesh is evil since it's a physical act, and you have these sexual physical desires it's bad it should be suppressed and all that the bible's teaching is that um the the bible's teaching is that it is not physical it is a spiritual thing when done within the context of marriage and done out of love for the other person it becomes a spiritual thing that must be continued and encouraged but that that's what I saw effectively yes. happen with us. It became a different, what I will call a different kind of love. Maybe sure. Not, and, and that's what the point of it is. That's why that you, you experience exactly what God intended to happen in this. So there shouldn't be any hang up about sex itself. I think we should be teaching our young people in churches that sex is a positive thing, that their sexual desires are not something to be ashamed of. But there's something that they should, like fire, put in the fireplace. You know, you can use the, I think it's a good illustration, actually. Fire just out in the room on the floor is a dangerous thing in a house. Fire in the fireplace is a, good is a very good thing in a house. So when you keep sexuality, and because it's a dangerous thing, it's like a fire. When you keep sexuality in the fireplace within marriage, in a committed relationship, you have a very great and powerful thing. When you just throw it around the house, and it becomes a very destructive thing. And so that is um, that's where the the hangups that we have, the idea that we can just get rid of all of our hangups, and that would be a good thing, is misguided. Now, here's what I'm going to say about that: if if you're if you're a person who has a hangup and you think sex is dirty and you won't have sex with your spouse because you think sex is dirty or it's unspiritual, or you won't have a particular kind of sex, you see, uh, that would be authorized by the Bible, then, yeah, you have a hang-up you should work on, you see. Um, well, it gets back. How, but otherwise, how, you how should do you define experience. hang-up and what exactly well, that, is that's a hang-up? That's what I'm saying. That's, become, that's the right kind of hang That's the wrong kind of hang-up, where you have a hang-up that, forbids you from doing what the Bible allows. Now, then you have the other kind of hang-up. I have a hang-up about adultery because I think the Bible says it's wrong, 
And yes, I have a big hang of about that. And if I committed adultery, my conscience would bother me tremendously and ought to bother me tremendously. I'd have a hang up about homosexuality and bestiality and all kind of other things because they're wrong. Not because I have a, not because I have some kind of a psychological problem. And I'll say this, Jerry, uh, there are a lot of people that go on and on and on about how wonderful things are in Europe with this regard. Europe is not a wonderful place sexually. It's not especially not a wonderful place for to be a woman in Europe because, well, Germany has a big problem with bestiality. Denmark and, I'm, and has pro, a big problem with with brothels in in general. Uh, I was reading the other day about the city of Amsterdam and in um, has just been ruined by the sex trade of Brit, especially British men coming to your to, to Amsterdam uh, and some of these other Danish cities because of the sex trade there where it's, all these things are legalized when literally there's names for it I can't pronounce them in English but Gary and these streets where they've made this legal in these cities in Europe they have we used to call it window shopping, you know, the stores in old downtown districts and would have windows where they put their merchandise in. These women sit in windows in these stores one after another and walk and you can walk down the street, look pick, in the windows what you want. and see the girls in the window and pick the one that you want. Yeah. This is somehow liberated, a liberated view of sexuality. Well, basically this is this is degrading not only to the men, but it's really degrading to the women. So those people who think that Christian morals are anti-female just haven't been paying very much attention. In my well, opinion. basically, this has been going on for a millennia or more. Oh, yeah. yeah all this has been going on for a long time. Way back, you know, a thousand years ago, say, in England, they were a little bit more circumspect about it. Because from what I've read and understand, there were street names like and one of the examples they gave in England in, say, about eleven hundred or nine hundred was Grape Street. If you wanted sex, you went to Grape Street in whatever town you were in. And it was the same kind of thing. The women would be on the side of the street, maybe not nude or anything like that, but. The women that were there on that street were for that for that purpose, and that's what they went there for. Now it's become more open today, but it hasn't changed essentially. I don't think it's just different. And, and if you knew the right name for the street, you knew where to go. It's degrading to everybody involved yeah, in it yeah. because it's because it's a sin. So yes, I have a hang-up about prostitution, and it, it not not just because I, I and that's not because I'm anti-female. That's because I'm pro-female, and that's not the proper use for of women or what their real value is. So, so um, I don't think you're going to gain much by going to the European model of sexuality, where we have made made it into a commodity, oftentimes, where people's bodies are open for display, and you know. There's been studies done, and we have new, a lot of nudists in our in Martin County, St. Lucie County. There are nudist beaches, and and just like a lot of other places, uh, some sort of called nudist camps. I think 
if I were to give them the benefit of a doubt, I would say that some of these some of these people, some of them are trying to get away from some of the uh, uh, repressions that they would call what they would call repression of the human body. But in the end, it doesn't create respect to walk around nude and so forth. Uh, it doesn't. We, yes, we do judge each other by what clothes we have on. But we also would judge each other if we were stark naked, Gary. That's that's a once again, it's not the clothes or not the clothes, not the clothes or no clothes. It is the human heart. That's the problem. And I, I think that by covering up from the as we signed at the very beginning of the Bible, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they made fig leaves to cover themselves up. The fig leaves that man made didn't do the job in the way that God intended. So he made animal skins for them, gave them animal skins to put on. Now, you can argue that animal skins covered more than the fig leaves. I, I guess they did. That I don't think that's really the point. I think the point there is that the covering that you need is not a man-made covering, but one that God gives you. But from the very beginning of time, humans have, have rightfully covered up their nakedness from each other. Some co cultures cover up a lot. Some cultures cover up bare minimums. There are differences, but in the end, uh, that's a human. That's a built into human nature. Are you, do you have a hang up about it? Some people do. The reason people have the hang ups is not because of Christian morality. I think the reason people have the hang ups is very often because of sin and abuse. Gary, uh, young woman that's been that's been sexually abused when she's young, for example, will often try to gain weight. She will wear baggy clothes, unattractive clothes, cut her hair off short. or and In other words, she's doing a lot of things to make herself unattractive to men because she has a hang-up, not because Christians gave her a hang-up, but because the devil gave her a hang-up. Wickedness gave her a hang-up. She's damaged, and so she can't display her natural sexuality in her mind in a safe way, and so she goes the other direction. Then that same girl, sometimes a switch gets flipped, and she decides she wants the male attention, and so she becomes very promiscuous, and they flip from one to the other. Uh, some of the people in our audience, I imagine, have married women with this kind of damage. They flip from one end of the spectrum to the other. That's not because American churches have created hang-ups about sex. That's because sin has damaged people. The churches, if they're teaching what the Bible teaches, have the solution to that problem. They have the answer to help that person. We see this, and we see the same thing going on with young men who have been abused. Uh, and, and who have other sexual problems. They're, they're not being taught by churches or other people how to handle their sexuality. And so um, they turn to homosexuality and transsexual behaviors and so forth because of that. But it's not because the churches teach that it's wrong to have sex outside of marriage. Having sex outside of marriage, having what we call free love, will not fix these problems. Jerry, if it were true... And I know you're not advocating this, but since you asked the question, if it were true 
that just getting rid of all the hangups about sexuality would fix the problems. Europe would be a paradise right now, but it's not. Okay, there's just as much suicide by homosexuals and transsexuals in Europe, if not more than there is in the United States. There's just as much brokenness among European women and men over prostitution and sexuality and in European culture as there are as there is in America, because neither culture is obeying the Bible. Neither American culture nor European culture is following what the New Testament says about sex. All right, Gary, I've been ranting. You look like you got something you want to say about this. Well, basically, I think we could probably spend a couple of shows talking about this in a probably in a little more logical or planned progression that would yes to reflect what Scripture actually says. But the passage I read earlier is important, and here's another one that I think everybody should keep in mind. It's Hebrews 13 and 4, in that the writer says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. That's the bottom line. And that's something we need to remember. It's like your analogy of the fire in the fireplace or the fire out in the middle of the floor. This is where he's telling you that marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. And and that that lesson is very, the word bed there, by the way, is koite in that, Greek, which we get coitus, the medical term for sexual intercourse. So he is when he talks about the bed, he's not talking about sleeping. He's talking about sexual intercourse. Well, really, the literal translation would be marriage is honorable among all and sex undefiled right. in that. Right. And so he is saying then there that. That marriage is the honorable state that people should live in. There's nothing wrong with marriage. Because I think even early on, there were some of these Greeks, Gary, who had been so scarred by the pagan way of practicing sexuality, by the rampant immorality and the disgusting things that the Greeks and Romans did sexually, that they had decided that when they became a Christian, they were going to give up sex altogether Sex was a bad thing because all they'd ever seen was what we're experiencing now to a greater degree, the degradation that sex brings. So they went the other way of our human reaction to it and said that sex was bad. Paul is saying, no, marriage is honorable and sex is undefiled. The bed is undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, he says, God will judge. Right. So there it is. What does the law say? What does the Bible say about what's wrong? Stop we, doing that. We, Do we, what's right. It's it's. I keep coming back to the fact that this utopia that all these liberals want, the closest we're ever going to get to that on earth is found in the Bible. Those, morali- those practices and the morality that's given to us by God will bring us so much better world if we would practice it. But we're not being told the truth about the conditions go in Europe about a, from a lot of pla- in a lot of places in the American press. We're not being told the truth about those things because we they want to present the European model of government as the best you know way of doing things, and so we don't get told the truth about that. But the fact is, I, and I would I would say this too though on the other end, I think that a, 
I think a lot of churches in during my lifetime and before have done a disservice because they haven't taught about the positive aspects of sexuality. Well, let's face it. God they, placed they that des- ne- only the negative aspects of sexuality. Well, but God placed that desire within us. You can't deny that. Well, people try to, and they say what they what they've taught young people, and that's kind of what I thought. And it's my mother tried to. My mother was good about teaching the truth about this, but other people weren't so much. They they view that sexual desire itself is bad, and that if you experience sexual desire as a young person or unmarried person, that you're an evil person. And and so forth. I had, you know, had grown Christian women telling me that to be tempted is a sin. So just the fact that you're tempted, that itself is a sin. Well, I'm going to tell you something. Most young men are lost, completely lost from the time they're 14 years old or earlier. OK, if you're t- no, if, if temptation, if temptation is, is a sin, it's acting on the temptation. That's the sin or letting the temptation grow in you. So it becomes an obsession. But the fact is, churches have not really, in my opinion, done a very effective job of preaching and teaching the positive aspects and a positive model of human sexuality. Now, there are plenty of resources in my lifetime that have come about that have tried to do this very thing, and and there's some contention about them, but still, it's a positive thing that the Bible presents. That positive thing helps people overcome the negative damage that's done by not practicing proper sexuality. This is a this is a rampant epidemic among young people, Gary. One of the big discussions that goes on uh, in, in if, if you watch any of these uh, Instagram and YouTube channels is discussion of body count, what they call a body count. I've heard of and, that. And that means that, you know, how many people have you had sex with? What's your body count? And so there are these young women on there that their body count time they're 20 years old is, is 30, 40, 50. You know, young men, they won't even talk about it, you see, because it's so high. And all I'm and I'm, I'm I don't get as angry about that as I get sad about it, because I can tell you dealing with this experience, those people are are setting themselves up for much misery in life. Uh, they, they're setting themselves up for such misery and pain. And they won't ever really know what it is. They're going to blame God for it or the church for it. And the fact is they have this problem because they have sinned against themselves in this very matter. And yet uh, there's an interesting story of um, in the Bible in David's lifetime, in David's life. Let's see if I can find it here in Second Samuel 13. Absalom had a son. Absalom was the son of David. He had a, it says, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So her half-brother, they're both children of David, different mothers. But he, and he loved her. And Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick. He just became lovesick, obsessed with her. And he, for she was a virgin. And yet, as you read the story, you begin to realize that was not love. Well, in the long run, he thought it was, but it wasn't in the long run. That's right. And he says he, he, he said he became sick for she was a virgin and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. He couldn't just go have sex with her like he wanted to. But Amnon had a friend. His name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. He had a cousin named Shemiah. 
Now, Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, he's, a, he's Eddie Haskell. <laughs> Why are you, the king's son, becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? He said, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So it says, he shows, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me food. Prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from, your, from her hand. And so he pretended to be ill. And then David sent for his daughter Tamar and said, go to your brother Amnon's house and fix food for him. And he was there lying down. And, and he refused to eat, it says in verse 9. And then he sent all the men out, have everyone go out, all the other people. And so they all went out. Amnon said to Tamar, bring me the food that I may eat from your hand. And when he did this, he grabbed hold of her, it says in verse 11, and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. Now, here, here's where I read all that to say. Verse 11. No, my brother, do not force me for no such thing ought to be done in Israel. She's saying, this is a sin against God. Yes. Okay. And then she says to him, do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, so sex without this kind of a, not only sex outside of marriage, but this was a forcible sex. She said, it's disgraceful. Where could I take my shame? You're going to sin against me. And as for you, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king. He will not withhold me from you. In other words, there's a way this can work out, but he he raped her. It, it caused bloodshed from that point on in David's family. Now, her three points, sex outside of marriage is a sin against God, it's a sin against yourself, and it's a sin against the other person. Whether you feel it or not, whether you think it is or not, whether you see the results immediate or not, that's what it is in the Bible. And so we ought to be very careful with this. Well, our time is about gone, Gary, so we've got a couple minutes. I'll just but, wrap this but up. But also look carefully at his reaction after he had sex with her. He despised her. Right. And he left her immediately. And that he said that the, love, the hatred he had for her was even greater than the love he had for her. Well, basically, I is think he, he became disgusted with her after he humiliated her. Well, I think his love didn't exist. I think his love was literally just lust. That's all it was. Well, in a young person, your sexual desire and your love are connected together. He let the sexual desire overpower the other emotions there, and so it became a sin. So, and but, That's right. But so this, right. Is, this is the shameful part of this story. In this case, and so uh, in any event, and maybe next week we'll treat Matthew five twenty-seven through twenty-nine. Yeah, yeah, we haven't got to a bunch of these, we haven't these got other to things. A bunch of these but it's a great things. question, Jerry, and I, I, I'm sorry to give you a kind of a negative answer on it, but I wouldn't be concerned about so much about European hangups as if America's doing the wrong thing. America's not doing anything anything right, and either is Europe. What the scriptures teach about sexuality and sexual behavior is the right thing to do. So let's let's uh, conclude this morning by inviting you to come and worship with us at 2196 Southwest Savona Boulevard at the Church of Christ on Savona Boulevard. We'd like to invite you to take a look at our website, which is wearejustchristians.com. Wearejustchristians.com. We appreciate you doing that and hope that we can see you here sometime. If not, listen in again next week. 
And uh, we pray that you will do that. May God bless you. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. We are just Christians live from Savona Church in Port St. Lucie on WPSL Port St. Lucie.